Agile Rabbit make events for curious minds. In partnership with the University of Exeter, we focus on ideas, global affairs and the natural and scientific world. These events are set in contrasting venues across the southwest to provide quirky experiences which welcome conversation. For more information, visit agile-rabbit.com. Here is Paul Mason, journalist, broadcaster and filmmaker, talking about his latest book, How to Stop Fascism. The first time in my life I understood that fascism existed. I was only five. We were watching a programme, and there's lots of baby boomers in this audience who will remember this, all our yesterdays. Um, It was like a nostalgia programme of of archive. I was about five. I'm sitting in the living room of my two-down terraced house in Lee, Lancashire, and on comes pictures of Bergen-Belsen being liberated. If you know what those pictures are, famous pictures there of um, the bodies of Jewish concentration camp victims being bulldozed into a mass grave. And my mum leapt up from the sofa and said, we're not watching that, and switched it off. And my mum was half Jewish. Her side of the family were from Poland. She was born in 1935. She lived throughout her childhood with the war, in the full knowledge that were we to lose the war, um, she would not have survived. That was told to her. And even at the age of five myself, she was able to explain to me what these pictures had been and that something really big and bad had happened and it was over. It would never happen again. So I didn't need to watch it on the television. A pretty common view about fascism among people who'd lived with it, survived it and, um, and been born straight after it. That it was a terrible thing, a one-off. It was never going to happen again because its causes had disappeared. Not just people like my mum, secretary, eminent professors of history believed this. And as far as explanations of why it had happened went, they were really quite chaotic. One modern historian has described it as um, sort of liberal disarray. If you're a psychology professor, you, you, you'd, you'd say, well, fascism happened because Hitler was a psychopath. Or if you were a historian of Germany, you might say fascism happened because because the German people had certain challenges built into their nationhood. Totalitarian theory said, well, fascism was just a subset of many different forms of totalitarian rule that that came through the 20th century. And economists tended to say it was the product of mass unemployment. Anyway, you you take your pick and choose whichever you want because it's irrelevant, it's gone. So that was the view. My mum's view was justified. But about this time, in the early 60s, A French fascist called Maurice Bardèche wrote this. In another time, in another place, with the face of a child we do not recognise, with the head of a young Medusa, with no projection whatsoever from its past experience, the order of Sparta will be reborn. The order of Sparta was for post-war fascism, the code word for fascism. And he was right. Because what we're seeing all around us, not just in Western societies or Europe, but throughout the world, is the rise of a new form of fascism, which is quite different to its old form. Now, it happened once, killing 6 million people, causing a war in which 20 million Russians were killed, devastating Europe, the first industrial genocide. For that to happen once 
is an incredibly challenging thing for us. For it happened once. You know, you will know if you're from the baby boom that most of our philosophical discussions and even religious discussions for in our lifetime has been, what does it mean for humanity that this could happen once? But if it can happen again, that's a whole different question. And that's what I'm trying to, um, trying to argue and with and engage with in my book. I could, I could list the far-right movements that exist, but if you want to just take one example, um, the most obvious one is what's going on now in the aftermath of the, the 6th of January riot this year uh, outside the, the US Capitol. Far-right groups mobilised by an outgoing and sitting president, still president, were mobilised to create the a force outside that parliament that would persuade both judges, lawmakers and civil servants to annul a democratic election. The people who are on trial for, subjudice isn't as tough as it is there as it is here, but I should still say allegedly, uh, allegedly storming and, and planning the storming with, you know, with handcuffs ready to arrest the Speaker of the House of Representatives were from two groups that are identifiably fascist by any definition that you want to give. We'll get to definitions in a minute. The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers Militia are said to have planned, executed and conspired to do that. The more we get into the evidence, the more we are finding links from them to Trump, to the Trump movement. So that's just an example. I could give you many more. The book is full of them. But what the book is not is a kind of, is not a catalogue of what the far right movements are. Because you can get that from some brilliant NGOs and monitoring groups. The book is an attempt to explain why we're having to deal with this again. Political philosophy rather than the sort of zoology of fascism. And my explanation for why we're having to deal with the rise of far-right thinking again is this. We're facing a crisis of something I call the neoliberal self. Neoliberalism is a system, an economic system, that was invented, I would say it, came, it began to, to operate properly after, after 1989, invented by Thatcher and Reagan, free market globalised economics in which the market rules everything. My friend Will Davis, who's an economist at Goldsmiths, he, he sums it up as the disenchantment of politics by economics. Everything becomes economics. Everything political is determined by the market. The market rules your life. And as long as you obey the market and don't expect anything other than that, don't, for goodness sake, tamper with it or tinker with this market, it, like a kind of all-knowing computer, will work out the best outcomes for humanity. That's the essential point to neoliberalism. And what went along with it? That the market was the best thing and, and you should obey it. That history had ended. There would be no further progress, no further forms of society, no further challenges. Liberal democracy and the free market are the highest form of human life and nothing further could be imagined. So don't bother. And alongside that, America will rule the world forever. It's a unipolar world and there are no future superpowers possible. America will dictate everything. Now, I just want to make you conscious that in this room, as well as you, the baby boomers and some young people, there are two 14-year-old school uh, students. And so I'm both moderating my language, but I am also um, speaking to them in the full knowledge that this is ancient history to them. Because what happened is that the history restarted and that America has collapsed as a unipolar thing. And the, mar and the free market, which once regulated everything, is no more. 
it collapsed as the regulator of society. The market had to be saved by the state. And that wasn't in the theory. In 2008, I was stood outside Lehman Brothers on Fifth Avenue, New York, watching bankers come out with their, their belongings in plastic, in paper bags. That was the end of the, the high period of neoliberalism. The economic model and the economy have been kept on life support ever since by 12, 13 years of central banks printing money and states subsidising banks. But it's not neoliberalism and it doesn't make any sense. You can keep an economy on life support forever like this, actually. What you cannot do is keep an ideology alive with money because the, our human brains demand coherence. We demand an answer. How does the world work? The other thing about neoliberalism was, it was like, you know, people my age, we always have to take vitamin pills. And, if, and, and as you will know, if you are a vitamin pill taker, what you want is a really big one that gives you all the vitamins you ever need. <laughs> and, and, and neoliberalism was that pill. It, 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 you didn't have to take 10 separate pills. It was one pill. It explained the world. Now, when it collapsed, people didn't go, give me 10 different pills that could replace it. They went, give me one explanation of the world that can, can replace neoliberalism. And the selves we created, you know, it wasn't just an ideology floating above our heads like a cloud. We yet lived neoliberalism. I changed my behaviour. I learned to, you know, regard all jobs as temporary, all promises as breakable, all economic situations liable to be disrupted by the market. You know, I wasn't going to have a job for life. I wasn't going to sit in the same place. My relationships were going to be broken up by the stresses of market society. That wasn't the world I grew up in. And I can see from the age of some of the people here, that wasn't the world you grew up in. I grew up in a stable world of community and solidarity. And I realised that had been blown apart. So, okay, change my behaviour. And now people are saying, well, I need to change my behaviour again. What, what to? Because the left didn't give a plausible answer to this, and this happened very recently, remember, 2008 economic crisis, 2011 mass uprisings from, from you know, Occupy Wall Street to, to Greece to, to Spain, um, 2016 Trump. Um, because the, the left didn't give an answer, what has happened is people say, well, what, you know, if, if a religion fails, if the prediction is that you know, on Thursday the sun will descend into the, the sea on the horizon, turn purple and turn into a thousand bats, um, and it doesn't happen, people go, what other religions are there? What, what do we used to believe before we believed this other crazy thing? And what we used to believe in was this, our white skin and my British nationality and the fact that Britain ruled the world and that America was once great and it ruled the world and Russia was once great. And before you know it, what had happened is that the neoliberal self had grasped as if with a life belt onto nationalism. Now, nationalism isn't fascism, and nationalists are not necessarily fascists. But what happened is that we got, from the 1990s, movements that we now call, in political science, right-wing populism. So UKIP, Marine Le Pen and Jean-Marie Le Pen's Front National, now called Rassemblement National. Um, in Spain, you, the, the rise of the old phalangist movements, the, the Francoite movements. Everywhere, you've got white, white supremacy and white nationalism uh, from the 1990s. And uh, recent work has pointed out that this was very heavily driven by the disappointment of uh, the Vietnam War. But, what, but by mid-1990s, political scientists all over the world are studying something called right-wing populism. And what does it believe? You can, you can look on the European website, European Union website for a kind of 
typology of right-wing populism here, fascism over here. Right-wing populism doesn't like democracy. It prefers the will of the people expressed through referendums. It doesn't like lawyers. It doesn't like human rights. It sees human rights as for other people, migrants, <laughs> feminists. It is nationalist in a kind of cultural way, but it wants to work through democracy. And what it wants to do is it wants to stand in elections and disrupt the party system and pressure uh, governments to adopt things like um, pushing back migrants in the middle of the English Channel. That's right-wing populism. As we got our heads around it, and in Britain it was, I mean, the, the right-wing populism was UKIP in its various forms, and I'd argue the BMP, which morphed in, from a fascist movement into a kind of right-wing populist party. It gave up violence. The problem we've got is that for about 20 years, political scientists assumed, and pollsters, I can remember being told this by people who've worked for YouGov and the rest of it, that whatever, however bad right-wing populism is, it's not fascism. And it, it, it can act, if we just play our cards right, as a kind of firewall against fascism so that anybody who hates migrants and doesn't like feminism and hates trans rights and the rest of it could probably just waste their entire life trying to get Nigel Farage elected prime minister in the full knowledge that that can never happen. That was the theory. Well, the problem is, and this has happened again very recently, I'd say from the middle of the last decade, the firewall is on fire. A section, not all, a section of the mass base of right-wing populism everywhere, but above all America, has flipped from a kind of casual, non-theoretical, prejudiced-based politics, like I don't like the hijab, I don't like the way um, you know, curry smells, you know, or, you know that kind of stuff. Uh, I think you know, feminism and, uh, has gone too far. That kind of prejudice to a very theoretically precise and worked out set of ideas. I was on a demo against the prorogation of Parliament in September 2019 and, and a bunch of people came down the street shouting Boris is our hero and the rest of it but they were Tommy Robinson supporters, they, they were people mobilised by the far right and they, they were old as well, they were the same age as me, I probably chased them and they chased me in our 20s up and down Brick Lane in East London but then what they were worried about was hijabs and Muslims and, and curry and halal meat. And now they were worried about the Frankfurt School of, of Social Research. You know, I, they were worried about Marxism. They had ideas in their heads that were very clearly identifiably not prejudiced, but were really well worked out view of the world. And that view of the world is what I'm going to explain to you now. It's what I call in the book, the thought architecture of fascism. Now, if you haven't heard this, the first thing you're going to do is worry because it is so convincing and you have heard so much of it from people in your life that once you understand what it is, you get worried. I would say, don't worry. This is not a doom mongering session. It's a session for us to try and understand what is driving people to these ideas and then to do something about it. And I think things can be done about it that can deprogram people. But this is the way modern fascism thinks in five points. The first point is the great replacement theory. The theory that inward migration to Western societies is a form of genocide against white, the white race. Now, if you think about this, that there's a different order of magnitude. If somebody says, migrants have taken my job and I don't like their culture, that's disagreeable. But if they say they are a threat to my very existence, what are you going to do if you feel like you're going to be genocided? What you're going to resist violently? 
So the theory of so-called white genocide or the Great Replacement is, the, is, is point one, 101 of modern fascism. Its modern form was expressed by a French writer called Renard Camus in 2012, but it is an old, old theory going right back to the 19th century, uh, to scientific racism in, in the late 19th century, both in Germany, France and here. So if migrants are enemy number one, this is the difference between the new fascism and the old. Point two is that a co-equal problem is feminism. Because feminism depresses the white birth rate. Feminism deposes the alpha male from the, his historic place at the top of white society. Feminism gives women permission to lead sex lives that might involve them sleeping with someone who is not white and also um, who is not necessarily male. And therefore, the natural order, and fascism is obsessed with the natural order, is overturned by feminism. Feminism closely followed by liberalism and human rights lawyers. So the people they really hate most, top of the pyramid of hatred is quite crowded. It's migrants followed by their facilitators. Those who aid the occupation of Europe, says Camus, by migrants are feminists, lawyers and liberals. This is quite new. Point three, in the minds of these people, nothing can be complex, nothing can be indeterminate, nothing can be accidental. Everything has to have been designed by somebody. This is somebody's plan. Whose plan is it? Well, that's where you get to cultural Marxism. In the 1950s, as the working class failed to take power, says the new fa fascist theory, in the 1960s, what was left of Marxism took a turn towards social liberalism and decided to undermine Western society by promoting feminism, black civil rights, gay rights, and the rest of it. So then they ask, who are the carriers of this ideology? And actually, I am a fully signed up and out and open Marxist, but they're not worried about me. They're worried about sociology lecturers. They're worried about people who te teach in liberal arts co colleges in America. It's people who simply teach the basics of, for example, critical race theory or intersectionality. They really think, they really believe that that is the plot that's to undermining the West. And there's an interesting parallel here because you may know that the Nazis had the word Kultur Bolshevismus cultural Bolshevism. This idea of cultural Marxism is a direct lift from that. What, why it's important is because for the Nazis, they looked for who is the carrier of Marxism? Who has brought this alien ideology into our society? And their answer was, of course, the Jew. The Jews are responsible. Today, you will still find Nazis who say basically the same thing. The Zionist-occupied government, as the, as the new fascists call it, um, a world government that is promoting social liberalism to promote the destruction of the white race. But at its heart, it's the idea that people who fight for social justice, social justice warriors, are the new carriers of the disease. So that's point three. Point four, what do you do about it? Every act of fascist violence that I've discussed in the book, and the, the six big examples that I used just from last year alone, every, every act is designed to tell a story through symbolic violence. What the story is telling is when we really want to do this, this is how it will happen, and this is where it will happen, and this is what it will look like. You have to read the 6th of January from the point of view of the far-right activists who took part of it, in it as a symbolic narrative. This is what will happen next time, but next time it will be for real. When they go to the Greek border and hand out leaflets to, to, to refugees coming across it and then round them up at gunpoint, 
you know, while the, while the Greek police look, look on, civilians rounding other civilians up at gunpoint, they're saying, maybe there's only 20 of us doing it now, but when the big moment comes, we need tens of thousands here to be here at the Greek border to do this for real. And that brings us to point five. What is their maximum program? What is their goal? They're no longer thinking in terms of six millions. What they're thinking of is that they like the world to end in a global ethnic civil war that leads to monocultural, single ethnicity, massive states. Almost every fascist theorist, Alexander Dugin, Orlando de Osvaldo de Carvalho in, in Brazil, Dugin in Russia, Guillaume Fay, recently deceased porn star termed philosopher in France, always write about the same thing. There needs to be a day X, a deluge, a moment where Western society collapses and we end up with societies where all heterogeneity, diversity, sexual, gender and, and ethnic has gone. Sometimes they say how, but generally they don't say how, they just say they won't be here. So they're not thinking about six million people, they're thinking about billions of people. The, the, the Finnish eco-fascist, Penti Linkola, so you get green fascists as well. Um, Penti Linkola said, you know, the earth can't support seven billion people, probably can support about a billion. So, you know, just have to think about ways of not having the other six billion. Now they're thinking about billions, it's chilling. So that's the, that's the structure of their thinking. Great replacement, violent misogyny and anti-feminism, cultural Marxists are the, are the new Jews, prepare, tell stories through symbolic violence, wait for the big day. But what is their modus operandi? And let, let me move now to this. What does it mean for the way the new far right operates? Am I worried about the fact that, you know, there are a few tens of thousands of far right activists in Britain? No, I'm not. Because they're containable, they're under surveillance, they're highly penetrated by NGO infiltrators from people like Hope Not Hate and also by the cops. But I'm not actually worried about them taking power. What I'm worried about is that their way of thinking has begun to structure the mass base of far-right populism and even parts of conservatism. That's what I'm worried about. And it's certainly true in America, certainly true in Brazil. What does it mean for, for what we're up against? People my age and around my age will have a kind of picture of what Nazism was like. It was an extreme fascism, a radical fascism. Francoism, a little bit less radical. You'll have in your mind what they kind of were generally like. And most people use these features to construct definitions of fascism, like it's a kind of militarized, uniformed movement that wants to destroy democracy through violence. And I say, fine, if that's the definition you want. But here's the problem. And it's unusually the old academic definitions, Roger Griffin, the, the most famous UK academic definition, fascism is a form of violent ultranationalism con concerned with national rebirth. First problem is it's now international. They may be nationalists and racists, but because their aim is a global civil war, they're quite happy to see their own state defeated. So the first thing is it's internationalist. Second is that it's networked. A lot of my books have been about the, imp the impact of the networked society and the rise of networked individualism. And it's the way that networked individuals react and act and interact with each other is very different than the hierarchical people that we grew up as. What is it, what's this, the consequence of, of it being networked? It means that one, you don't need 10,000 hierarchical uniformed people like the people in that Ridley Road drama, you know, 
following one daft leader with all with the uniforms are not as effective as having 500,000 people vaguely engaged with these ideas who will, on a given day, all do the same thing online. They'll move like a shoulder fish towards a, uh, one goal as soon as the first person turns towards it. So networked, swarming, non-hierarchical forms of communication and action are really central to modern fascism. The third thing, and I think this is almost the, the most important difference, is that the route into it is co-equally racism and misogyny. Hitler and Mussolini were misogynists. Hitler gave women you know, a medal if they had five children, forcibly sterilised other women for, for, for being subhuman and the rest of it. Mussolini drove women out of certain professions. But they weren't dealing with a generation that's experienced 50 years of, of birth control technology, or however inadequate, equal rights under the law. What, what's the imp impact of that? Everyone knows, you know, if, you, if you met a fascist, you've met someone who just really hates the modern world and they really hate migrants, refugees and Muslims. That's generally what they're, they're there for. But now that violent misogyny is, is equally important to them, it gives, them a whole, it gives people a whole other route into far-right thinking. And here's the difference. If you meet somebody who says, you know, a migrant took my job, often that's just not true. You know, theoretically, they think a migrant might have took their job, but it's often not true. If you meet somebody who says a woman has replaced me as a man in the social hierarchy, it probably is true. You know, that, that's what all the incels and the so-called beaters, i.e. non-alpha males, sit there thinking. You know, there should be a, uh, alpha males should have the prettiest girlfriends, beta males should have the rest. Women should accept that. But what we've got now is women won't accept I, any of it. And here's another difference. A lot of really you know, horrible races would secretly quite like to hit uh, a black person or a, or a Muslim. But very few have. Every violent misogynist has hit a woman. And that's, that's the big difference. So those of you who know about Gamergate, Gamergate was a big furore inside the gaming community, mainly young men, where they swarmed against women inside that community. It proved a mobilising thing for sexism and misogyny. It turned out to be a major conduit into far-right politics. What to do about this? The first thing is, is that they're not the main threat. The main threat is that evisceration of democracy by elites who've decided to adopt nationalism and anti-democratic practices and right-wing rhetoric to mobilise the right-wing populist mass base. So in America we have Trump. Trump will probably, if, he, if he's still alive, I think will win if he stands. The next French election next year will be Macron, who is an Islamophobe, and I hate him, I dislike him, let me put that, let me be too strong, versus two potential, as far as I'm concerned, fascist or fascist thinking candidates. The left is nowhere. So we need to defend democracy. And in the 1930s, Hannah Arendt, German-American philosopher, once described fascism as the temporary alliance of the elite and the mob. The history of the 1930s shows you the only time fascism was defeated, apart from by an army, the Red Army, was when the left and the centre made a temporary alliance against it. And that was in the so-called popular fronts of the mid-1930s. Now, there'll be people in the audience who, like me, have had a Marxist education and know that popular fronts are a disaster. Alliances between liberals and socialists always end in a disaster and betray the working class, etc. The fact remains, the only two major elections that the left won against mobilised fascist forces 
were the French and Spanish general elections of 1936. And they did so by making overt electoral pacts between liberals, socialists and communists. And the electoral pacts were backed by mass cultural movement, which I argue in the book was even more important than the pact, and a mass political movement. So number one, I think we're just going to have to make a temporary alliance of the centre and the left, where this is the main problem. For example, what was the democratic victory in America of Biden, other than an alliance between the left and centre? Biden and, and Sanders made an agreement, mobilised their different forces and defeated Trump, even though he got 10 million extra votes. Point two, where we can do it, I think we need anti-fascist laws. Uh, and above all, I'm not in favour of banning lots and lots of speech I don't like, but I am in favour of banning genocidal speech. Because I should have said the other thing that is different today is that today, everywhere you go in the fascist online networks, they are obsessed with genocide. In a way that, say, 19-year-old German Sturmabteilung, brown shirt, in 1932 was not obsessed with genocide. Today's fascists are obsessed with it, so I've banned genocidal speech. And the final thing, I just want to argue for an anti-fascist ethos. You know, our, our grandparents fought a war. In, we are lucky in this country, we had an anti-fascist ethos. We, we beat fascism, we're really proud of it. And now, to, to let people like Trump and, 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 and others go around saying anti-fascism is the problem, which is what Trump says, anti-fascism is terrorism, would be a huge defeat for us. So the last point thought I want to leave you with is, and maybe it's something we could discuss is, I want us to, to try and rekindle an overt, proactive anti-fascist ethos. I want politicians to say when a fascist rings in to a phone in, like they did with Keir Starmer, you know, I'm white and I'm from the Isle of Wight and I believe my society has been overrun with, with migrants, I'm being replaced. Starmer should have said, I'm an anti-fascist, and what you're saying is the fascist thought architecture, and I totally reject it. I want politicians to think really, and us in civil society, to think really carefully about how we could do that. You've been listening to Paul Nelson speaking about a future without fascism with Agile Rabbit.